From CPR News in Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters. On the left, they're lining up to run against Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. Notably, they're also lining up on the right. The fact that so many Republicans are challenging her indicates concern some have about her ability to keep the seat. Then, Lucas Bullen recalls the recreation center he'd visit as a kid on the Front Range. I remember they had a rope swing into a deep pool and there was uh, diving boards. It was really just a blast to have all that in one area. So he fought to open a rec center in Grand Junction. Now, Lucas has grown up and only just getting his wish. Also, pride has wrapped up here, a chance to celebrate and to come to terms. Queer youth and teens often get kicked out of their houses and they become homeless. I'm Mark Flynn, and I donated my car to CPR. It wouldn't go into first gear anymore, but it was running. The process was just as described, seamless, easy, and allowed me to make my first significant gift to Colorado Public Radio. Selling a car requires posting information, responding, haggling with would-be buyers. That sounded like a hassle to me. It was more important to me to make an investment in Colorado Public Radio. It's easy to donate your car. Just go to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction. The congresswoman here finds herself in the news again, not for conduct on the House floor, this time for being ejected from a theater for what managers deemed bad behavior. We will focus today, though, on why her race is shaping up to be one of the highest profile in the country. Let's connect with our correspondent in Washington, D.C., Caitlin Kim, who's done a lot of on-the-ground reporting in this third congressional district, which also includes Pueblo and Aspen. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Ryan. The reason we're talking now, more than a year from the election, is that this is Republican Lauren Boebert's district, and she barely managed to hold on to it last time around. That's right. Now, Boebert, in case anyone isn't familiar with her is a member of the hard-right faction in the House who garnered a lot of national headlines in her first term and her second for her antics both on and off the House floor, everything from heckling President Joe Biden at the State of the Union to being one of the holdouts, the last holdouts, in the Speaker's race for Kevin McCarthy. She also got a lot of attention for something else last year, which was her re-election, which was decided by the slimmest margin of any House race in 2022. And that's led many to wonder just how vulnerable she could be in 2024 and whether her seat, which has been a reliably red one for over a dozen years, could actually be flippable. And because she's seen as vulnerable, a lot of people from both parties are challenging her. I'd like you to introduce us to them, but let's start with Boebert herself. As you mentioned, she won by just 546 votes last election. What is she doing to try to ensure she has an easier shot next year? First off, she does have some built-in advantages. She's the incumbent, and historically, it is hard to knock out an incumbent. She's got campaign cash, lots of it, and the support of the party. And she does represent a district that, at least on paper, favors Republicans by nine points. That said... She's also been a controversial lawmaker, and it's clear from the results last time that her public profile could be doing her more harm than good with many voters in the district. Has she changed her approach since that close call? 
In some ways, yes. On social media, you see it promoting more meetings in the district with local lawmakers, Republicans, and Democrats. And that could be a response to criticism that she hasn't been as focused on the concerns of the 3rd Congressional District as she should be. She was also the only Republican congressional lawmaker from Colorado to change her mind about earmarks this term. She requested them after panning them in the last Congress. And that's important because earmarks are a way to deliver money to the district directly. But she's still brash and outspoken and also focused on MAGA issues like trying to impeach President Biden. It sounds like those changes haven't been enough to silence all her critics since she already has some declared primary challengers. Uh, Who are these other Republicans? That's right, Ryan. She's facing a few GOP challengers. First off is Russ Andrews. He's a financial advisor based out of Carbondale. He was the first to jump into the race. Grand Junction native Jeff Hurd is also running for the Republican nomination. He's an attorney and has the support of some pretty high-profile Republican officials. His campaign co-chairs are former Senator Hank Brown and Tim Foster, who used to be the president of Colorado Mesa University and also served as the Colorado House Majority Leader for a while in the 90s. It seems like a sort of appeal to, I don't know, like the traditional wing of the Republican Party, maybe. And is that everyone? Yeah, it's not everybody. Um, Yes, I I do think it's an appeal to sort of that traditional wing. There is actually still one more. Um, More recently, Craig McCracken, a businessman from Delta, also filed paperwork to run. Now, I should make it very clear, it is hard to beat an incumbent from your own party. And having multiple challengers makes it even more likely that they'll split the anti-Bobert vote if they all get on the ballot. But the fact that so many Republicans are challenging her indicates concerns some have about her ability to keep the seat. And remember, control of the House is at stake. But Bober herself beat an incumbent in the primary to get to Congress. So there is a precedent here, one that I'm sure she's hoping is not repeated. All right. Three Republicans hoping to push Bobert out in the primary. Now the Democratic field. Uh, I think the first one we have to talk about is Adam Frisch, who got within 550 votes of toppling Boebert. Yes, Adam Frisch is running again. He actually filed his paperwork pretty soon after conceding last year. And I think it's fair to say he's the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. Has his pitch changed much this time around? Or does he hope to run the same race and just, uh, you know, do 600 votes better? You know, right now, it's sounding pretty similar so far. You know, he's hinging his campaign on the argument that a majority of moderate Republicans, independents, and Democrats in the district want better representation, one that he says is not focused on anchortainment. You might remember that particular uh, phrase that he made up from his first run for the seat. Oh, yes. Uh, He also referred to himself as the pro-normal candidate. Yep, exactly. Now, politically, Frisch is a moderate Democrat and a former local elected leader from Aspen, and he's built up a large, large campaign war chest. You know, he outraised Boebert in the two most recent fundraising quarters. And as of June 30th, he actually had a million dollars more cash on hand than Boebert. But his name recognition and large fundraising halls have not stopped others, that is other Democrats, from getting in the race. That's right. You know, the Democratic primary is also a crowded field as of now. Top of that list is Anna Stout. She's the current mayor of Grand Junction, a Western Slope native, who was first elected to the city council in 2019. You know, Stout is also a moderate Democrat, and she's been endorsed by a pair of state lawmakers from the district. Um, But she goes into the race with less name recognition and campaign cash than Frisch. You know, she'll have this next several months to try and change that, but it is a huge district. 
The other Democratic challenger is Adam Withrow from Pueblo. You know, he's a political newcomer, has never held elected office, and used to work in the construction industry, but most recently has been homeschooling his kids. And I should say, of course, you know, it's still pretty early in the election cycle, and more candidates could still jump into the primary race from both parties. Now, why would other Democrats challenge Frisch when he got so close to besting Boebert last time? Well, first off, he didn't win. And they think the same issues that might have held some voters, especially Democratic voters, from participating in the 2022 election in that race particularly, will be there this time around as well. You know, that he's from a mountain resort community, he's wealthy, he's too moderate, whatever it is. And they see room for an alternative on the Democratic side. Of course, the big question in all of this, is Boebert really vulnerable? I mean, on paper, as you've said, given the voter makeup of the third district, which favors Republicans, she should not be. But last year disproved what's on paper. And I'm going to caveat this answer by saying a lot can happen between now and November 2024. But again, just given how close Frisch got to beating Boebert last time, this is definitely going to be a race to watch. A recent poll commissioned by the Frisch campaign shows that Boebert is underwater when it comes to favorability, including among unaffiliated voters. You know, this suggests that she's still vulnerable to an upset. That said, this won't be the same race as 2022. Boebert really wasn't campaigning in the district or talking to mainstream or local media very much. I'd expect that to change this time around. And now the National Party is going to be on its guard that it may need to step in and help her defend this seat. One big question is, with Republicans in control of the House now, can she deliver some legislative wins for the district? I suppose the other big difference between this last congressional election and the coming one is that this is a presidential year. Could something like a potential government shutdown or the impeachment inquiry into President Biden shape voters' views of her? Do you think there's much room for voters to change their minds about Lauren Boebert? You know, I don't think a shutdown helps any member of Congress. And as for an impeachment inquiry, you know, this is something many in the hard right wing have been pushing for. But it's never been a top issue for voters I've talked with in the, in the district. You know, they're more concerned about the economy, crime. As for Boebert being able to change voters' minds, well, that is going to be harder to do. She has time to do that, though. But for a lawmaker who came in with this sort of no-compromise attitude, how much she's willing to temper the rhetoric will be something to watch for. And if people's opinions are, you know, sort of baked in, then next year's race might not have much to do with persuasion at all and might instead just boil down to which side can get out the vote better next fall. And Ryan, as you mentioned, it's a presidential election year, which does increase voter turnout overall. So which side does it better remains to be seen. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Thank you, Ryan. Our Washington correspondent, Caitlin Kim, on the race to represent Colorado's 3rd Congressional District. When we come back, his class project failed, but ultimately he won. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You expect context from CPR News, but sometimes the news won't wait. Sign up for the Lookout Daily Email from CPR News, a rundown of important fact-based reporting in your inbox every day. And when major news breaks, you'll also get Lookout Alerts. Sign up at CPR.org slash lookout.
There's something this community's never really had that it's finally getting, a recreation center. An attempt in the 1970s failed. Then in 2000, a passionate high school student fought for one and lost. Lucas Bullen graduated, moved away, had a family. Yet another measure lost while he was gone. Now Bullen's back, and voters have agreed to tax themselves and make a Grand Junction rec center a reality. Lucas, nice to meet you. You as well. We have met at Matchett Park. I, it doesn't look much like a park, more like fallow agricultural land. I think I hear maybe crickets chirping. Yes. But this is where an 80,000-square-foot recreation center will go up. Is this the same place you'd hoped for a recreation center 20 years ago? Yes. In my effort in 2000, the uh, ballot language that came from that included a rec center at Matchett Park. This is city-owned land? Yes, it is. Okay. Growing up in Grand Junction in the 90s, without a rec center, where did kids go? Well, we would just go to parks. There was, thankfully, lots of parks around town, so... We had Lincoln Park, which is kind of the premier park closer to the downtown area. Canyonview Park had been built in the 90s. I think early 90s was when that opened. But it was quite a ways out of town at the time. The city's grown, thankfully, since then. So it's a lot easier to get out there now. But offered a lot of opportunities to play football or go play basketball. But all outside. All outside. Uh Uh-huh. No roof over your head. Correct. And, of course, it gets cold here. Yes. It does. How... Did you know about recreation centers? Have you been exposed to them? Yes. So I have a lot of family on the front range of Colorado, and we'd go there on weekends to visit. And my uncle had a rec center very close to his house, and it was kind of a new concept. One had just been built, and he took us there on a weekend, and it was great because we were able to jump from activity to activity. We went from the swimming pool to the gym where we were able to play basketball. We went and played volleyball. But the nice thing was uh, it was all under one roof. Was it a kind of magical experience as a kid? Oh, it was. They had a, I remember they had a rope swing into a deep pool and there was uh, diving boards. Oh, it was like swinging from vine to vine and then landing in a pool. Yes. <laughs> when you approached the city about this 20 years ago, Grand Junction, you got an invitation to meet with city council. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes, so we had started our effort as part of a class that I was taking as a senior. Is that social studies or something? Um, I can't remember the exact name of the class, but it was something civics related, government related. Yeah. And our teacher told us that we needed to find something in the community that we were passionate about, that we could help improve, that was going to bring some kind of goodness to the community. So we, a partner and I, grouped together and we decided we wanted to try and get a rec center in town. And so we were meeting with Parks and Recreation, had uh, had a couple community meetings. It felt like the community was supportive of our idea. And then we got a letter in the mail, didn't have email back then, but got a letter (laughs) in the mail and it said, we'd like you to come have breakfast with us. And it was from city council. Now, how did you know or sense that the community was interested in this? Well, we had, we had had a couple community meetings that the Parks and Rec Department had helped us put together. We invited a lot of friends and family down to these meetings as well. So maybe uh, not an unbiased group, but <laughs> we did have some public citizens come down, just folks that we didn't know, and they would show up to these. And that was really through the efforts of Mary Steinbach, who is the Parks and Rec 
uh, employee that helped us. This is really precocious. I mean, at 18, that you've done that kind of organizing. Imagine it was a learning experience. Very much so, yeah. yes. Okay, so you get invited to city council, a letter in the mail. It feels so official. And how did that go? It was not the meeting that I was hoping for. We essentially walked into a room with city council, but they had also invited all the local private gym owners to the same breakfast. And the gym owners were very much opposed to the idea of a public recreation center. As They it saw it as competition. Correct, yes. Public they, competition. Yes. They, they definitely thought it, it was going to compete with their business. Was this an ambush? It felt like it afterwards. <laughs> yes. Do you remember arguing your case in the face of that kind of pressure? I do recall at least one of the gym owners was very vocal about how they provide all the services that the community needs at their facility. And I argued that as a teen or even as a child when I was younger, being taken to those same facilities that he was talking about, that I didn't feel included in those facilities where I didn't have the chance to go into the pool any given day. It was more on Saturdays during select hours, you can bring your kids into the pool. Otherwise, you're pretty much left at the daycare. I also had grandparents who obviously, I just saw their level of activities and I didn't see equipment and classes that catered to senior citizens. Yeah, the kind of silver sneakers Correct. approach. Wow, you, you came up with that on the fly in that meeting. Yes. Yeah. So there was a ballot measure eventually. There was. So I left for the Air Force in August of 2000 and kept in touch with Mary Steinbach. And she and I would call each other every once in a while and just keep each other updated on what was going on. She promised to kind of keep the effort going after I had graduated. And she informed me that it was going on the ballot in 2001. And it failed. It did. And Mary, by the way, is now executive director of the Recreation District in Montrose, nearby. Yes. What grade did you get in that civics class, remember? Oh, I'm, I don't know exactly. I'm sure it was an A. So, <laughs> yeah. You're sure it was an A? Yes. I, you know, if it was an A+, plus, I don't know if they were big on A-pluses back then, but I know that I got an A in the class. You joined the Air Force? Yes. Moved away, as you said. What was your reaction to that 2001 vote? Very disappointed. I was very excited, and I was watching from far. My gut told me this is going to go through. This is going to happen. So to be told that, to see on the internet that it had failed and to talk to Mary and hear her feedback was uh, very disappointing. If you're just joining us, we are talking about the decades-long fight for a recreation center in Grand Junction, which is finally coming to pass. So, Lucas, you moved back last summer after about 20 years away, just in time to step into the latest rec center effort. Yes. How did you feel about bringing your children to Grand Junction to have them grow up here the way you did? I was very excited. I was over on the Front Range in Colorado Springs and just saw an opportunity to move back here. Thankfully, I had uh, started a job post Air Force that allowed me to work remote. So saw an opportunity to come back here and be close to grandparents for my kids. Oh. You know, a smaller town feel, 
and just being able to do a lot more outdoor activities that I didn't have access to over there. And so two years from now, you'll be able to bring your kids to this spot. What does that mean to you? I hope there's going to be a swing into the pool, by the way, Lucas. I, I may just have to bring some rope of my own, but <laughs> yes. So, you know, in two years when this is all completed, I'll be extremely excited to bring them. And I think they're still a little confused about what a rec center is. Uh-huh. So I've had to explain it to them. You know, there was some private facilities over on the front range that uh, cost a lot of money to go into. And I reminded them of those types of facilities. And I said, this will be kind of like that, but more accessible. Do you think it says anything about how Grand Junction has changed that this facility was finally approved by voters? And, you know, a healthy margin, right? I mean, the win was 3,800 votes. That was the spread. Yes, I believe it was a, around 60% voted in favor. I think it's it's showing that the community is starting to focus on things for the community, not so much just what what is this going to do for me? That was one of the things that we heard a lot during the campaign. What, how does this help me? But I think the focus on, okay, how does this help our community? And people understanding what approving something like this can do for the community. I think it goes a long way to show that they're starting to think outwards. Thank you so much for meeting us here. Maybe we'll walk in together in a couple of years. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Lucas Bullen. We spoke at Matchett Park in Grand Junction. And Colorado Matters continues shortly at another park in town where there's tension over how to respond to homelessness. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. CPR Classical plays the great works all the time. Now, hear them nonstop every Saturday afternoon at 1. Music that stood the test of time. The works the world should know. I'm Jesse Jacobs. Join me for Essential Saturdays 1 to 5. You can ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. Metal barriers now surround a park here in downtown Grand Junction. The city wants to keep people experiencing homelessness out. A sign reads, closed until further notice, except for permitted special events. But why now? Why now is because I think the city is really trying to do a lot to support the unhoused community and service providers. Ken Sherboneau is Grand Junction's Parks and Recreation Director. He says unhoused people are welcome in city parks. The sticking point comes when there are too many people in the smaller places. I've really come to believe that unhoused are going to be present in the park facilities, and that's okay, and that's fine. They have a right to be there, just like everyone else has a right to be there. But when they're outnumbering the general public, then it becomes a feeling that people are less likely to go use that playground or less likely to go use that field. And so a lot of our philosophy is really trying to activate um, these spaces so that it can be shared use by everyone. Grand Junction's homeless population has been on the rise, exacerbated by the pandemic and the cost of living. According to the Common Sense Institute, homelessness here stands out among Colorado's largest cities. As a share of its population, 
The rate here is 14% higher than Denver's, 75% higher than Boulder's, and 165% higher than Colorado Springs. Sherbineau says cordoning off the park will clear the way for improvements, but there is opposition, even within city government. I'm concerned about it. Scott Bielfuss is a member of city council. My constituents have been reaching out to me, you know, saying, what the heck is going on? It's the center of the homeless community, especially the chronically homeless. You know, it shouldn't be taken lightly. They're residents. He's concerned the park closure only serves to displace people. It may make the problem worse, you know, if they're moving into the downtown area deeper. You know, we need some options for them. That's all there is to it. The problem is very large. Meanwhile, folks in Grand Junction who help feed and clothe this community see the new hurdles around Whitman Park, both literally and figuratively. We're disrupting people's calories, and now not only are they calorie-restricted by being homeless... They have to walk further to get their meal. This is Eric Niederkruger. We have meals here weekly, and people plan on months ahead of time to do it. We have plenty of churches. We have plenty of civic organizations that come down here. They weren't informed, and these are good faith actors that are trying to help out their homeless neighbors, and uh, they don't know what to do. This Saturday, the meal is interrupted. Coincidentally, the property across the street from Whitman Park was purchased by the city and donated to Catholic Outreach, which provides housing services in the valley. They intend to build a 40-unit apartment complex for vulnerable members of the unhoused community. The Western Slope is vast. So is its arts community. Our producer, Tom Hess, checked in with an artist in the Four Corners. Colorado's Western Slope is peppered with poets. At least that's what Wendy Vitalock says. She's the Western Slope Poet Laureate. So we asked her, whom on this side of the state should we be paying attention to? Esther Boleyn, her work is striking in that um, very often what you see with Western poets, and particularly with indigenous poets who have a bit of a handle on their native tongue, in Esther's case it's um, Navajo or uh, Diné, there's a real sense of the right here and the right now. Um, There's a real sense of history and the future, and it's very difficult to do that. It's a kind of an interesting balancing act. One of the best ways she does that um, is with her poem, Kwe'e. Kwe'e. One. It is here. Right here. It is not even trying to hide. It is here. Right here. It is not even trying to hide. No. That is what humans do. It is not even trying to hide. No. It is here. Right here. That is what progress does, too. What are the cardinal points that strike a match to how I am feeling? Since no words come forth, I search for the place on this planet that manifests my struggle, the scattering of cottonwood pollen in the wind, the tattered edges of graveside American flags, the yearn and spring wind bouncing off canyon walls, the slow swell of a viral invasion mushrooming 
into a uranium blast in the chest, latching radioactive particles to soft tissue. White dawn before me, comfort the earth. Blue mid-morning beside me, light the way. Yellow late afternoon above me, chase the fear. Black evening behind me, purge, purge right here. What she does is she moves from this really tight language, this really distilled, powerful language, into a more prosaic explanation and talks about, you know, how she says, what are the cardinal points that strike a match to how I am feeling? Which is, you know, such a powerful thing to say that not just as writers and poets and artists, but just as human beings, how do we know what we're feeling unless we actually process it, explore it? So she really sort of opens the door to her own thinking process in her work um, and allows us to be right where she is, right here, right now. Believe. Afterward, we will get up, all together with the sound of canyon wind howling, red clay masks preserving our faces, our government clothes tattered, no longer creased with false doctrine, the pressurized, deemed language escapes from the pores in our skin, the monogrammed label property of U.S. government erased from memory. Our teeth, sweat, saliva, fingernails, strands of hair recompose as the daughter of first man and first woman. The four support pillars reconfigure the directional mountains. The zenith and nadir bolt lightning into our backbone. The stone knife in our hand slays monsters. The sun rays fasten us snugly to Nahustan. The rainbow tethers a shield over us. All together, the intertwined winds breathe again. And some of her work is so approachable. Um, there's one that she has that's called Personal Poem. It's almost like she's kind of poking fun at herself and saying, see, I can write about me too, you know, and not just about these big concepts. Personal Poem. Now, when I walk around Durango, I generally have no intention but to see the latest display of two phenomenon before me or multiple sets and combination of two, or one could even call them dichotomies. Most times I just call it looking at the flip side. I walk past the Animus Chocolate Company thinking I will not go in to buy a tray of truffles or an Americano or discounted chocolate in the bin by the east wall and this time I am wrong again because I do pop in and gaze deeply into the case and rather than see the chocolatier's artistry displayed in all the multicolored and diversely shaped small batch truffles neatly arranged, a thought pops into my head, deterring me from my intention to focus on shiny speckled and smooth surfaces, gold dusted surfaces, net layered surfaces, all laid out 
for purchase and consumption. My attention wavers. There is a ruckus on Main Street. And just as I lift my head, I see Nancy, who tells me she just came from the Pride, not official Pride, because she is affiliated with a subversive collective that interjects love and kindness, willy-nilly, event, at the 11th Street Station. She's covered with rainbow hearts, and we split one down the middle and pose. Click, click click again because we are so goofy, sharing laughter and good times from just being able to hug in broad daylight on Main Street in this mountain desert, tourist tangle, tousled about like miners searching for a mother load of gold town, the place we call home. After sharing her poems with us, Esther Boleyn stuck around to chat about her work, beginning with those pieces crafted from her home in Durango during the isolation of the COVID-19 pandemic. The first two poems, Believe and Que, were inspired by my tribe, the, the Navajo Nation, experiencing effects from the pandemic. And me living you know, hours away from the the heart of the reservation, it kind of dealing with that scenario of helplessness and dread. And in the middle of that, really trying to understand what is my role as a community member in this part of the world. I'm still in the Four Corners and I'm on the Colorado side, which is home to two tribes, but they're, they're not mine. So I feel like that both of those poems really address the idea of borderlands and political boundaries and how we define home and collective humanity, especially during that time of the pandemic when we were really experiencing intense isolation as things were closing and shutting down. What's it like reading those poems now? I was talking to another poet a couple of months ago, and they brought up their mm -hmm. pandemic work, and they they likened it to like reading their high school writing. There's that headspace that you'll never be in ever again because it's such a point in time. Do you have any different reactions wow. reading it now, given how how things are it's certainly different than they were this time of 2020. Sure. And I feel, you know, that's an interesting question you bring up. And I think for Indigenous people, one thing about the emotional intensity of that time and the tragedy around it, because it affected tribes differently than other places for numerous reasons, was I think that in a way, it was re-traumatizing in the sense that, again, here are tribal people being affected by disease and really being wiped out by it because biological warfare was used as part of a way to wipe out tribes early on. And that's well documented. And I'm old enough to have a mother and, you know, her siblings be affected by childhood diseases. 
right? So she's had um, a couple of her brothers as um, toddlers and as an infant die. So I think in terms of cultural memory and lived experience, those things are still very part of our everyday stories and our history. Belen's personal poem, that one Wendy Vidalot commended for its playfulness, was inspired by Frank O'Hara. He was a New York City poet whose works included the collection Lunch Poems. They were really about this idea of him walking around New York City during his lunch hour and jotting down things that he saw or that caught his eye or emotion and tethering those ideas that he had to what he saw. So I did my own version of that for, I guess, Durango. (laughs) Did it make you see Durango a little bit differently going into it that way? Yeah, it did. I mean, I think there's just... And so the other thing as well, the lunch poem series that Frank O'Hara did, there was this like silliness about them kind of random humor, things that just would sort of magically bring a sparkle, right? And so I think looking at my hometown that way was really fun. And also looking at my habits, right? Like I I walk down and I always say, oh, I'm not going to go into the shop or, oh, I want to go into the shop. I do love the fact that when you live in a place for a long period of time, there's a really good chance that you will see people that you know. And I love those sort of accidental uh, encounters with people. And and some of those elements were brought into the poem. I, I guess everybody who's lived in a small town feels this way to a certain extent. But the, <laughs> the way it's written, it sort of feels almost like how characters appear in a sitcom where it's just, oh, so yes. yeah, we're dropping this character in. It's, they've been written into the into the scene. Exactly. It's quite fun. I mean, they're very playful poems. That is Esther Boleyn speaking with Tom Hess from her home in Durango. And we'll be right back with a pizza parlor in Fruta that now serves up performances rather than pies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Glendale and Indy 1023 presents Colorado Music, Saturday, September 23rd at Infinity Park. Featuring four bands, all from the Centennial State, Lip Gloss DJs, Heavy Diamond Ring, Juno Rosa, and Wildermas. Bring blankets, chairs, your favorite food, and any non-alcoholic beverages. Glendale presents Colorado Music, Gates at 415, Wildermas at 8. Details and tickets, Indy1023.org. Colorado West Pride just wrapped up its 11th year. The Grand Junction event takes place in September and draws LGBTQ people and allies from all over. Here again, Western Slope reporter Tom Hess. A colorful and boisterous festival in the park marked the culmination of another year of Pride in Grand Junction. It's also the first year Jesse Daniels was able to relax after a decade of founding and running the event. He grew up in Grand Junction, and when he saw that the neighbors to the west were out doing his hometown, he got inspired. I went to Moab Pride for their first year, 
which was about two years before we had our first official festival. Their first year, they had a parade, they had a festival, they had multi-days of events. And I came back to town and I complained to my friends about you know the fact that Moab, Utah was able to pull this off in a town of 5,000 people. And all Grand Junction had was a picnic in a park. And how that was not, <laughs> that is not a pride make. Daniels has seen LGBTQ acceptance on the Western Slope ebb and flow. He was in high school when Matthew Shepard was murdered. He remembers the era-specific phrases you'd hear in the 2000s, like the bar he worked at in Grand Junction. Which, you know, at the time was straight till eight. We'll put it that way. And then after that, they took everybody's money. Daniel still works at a bar, but he owns this one. Good Judy's is the nucleus for Grand Junction's LGBTQ scene. He appreciates the growth of his community, he also knows that civil rights movements evolve and the needs of the community evolve. That's one reason he stepped down from leading Colorado West Pride this year. You have to get new ideas. You, I have no idea what the generation below us needs. <laughs> I really don't. Um, and again, those things don't directly affect me, so I'm a little more apathetic. So it's good to get those, you know, those fresh eyes on it and fresh voices in there to say, no, we need... We need to do this now. We need to look at this. We need to start shifting gears over here. So I'm excited that that's starting to happen now. Caleb Vergancic is one of those younger organizers. Their Slamming Bricks event takes its name from the Stonewall Uprising. Vergancic got the idea from a slam poetry event in, you guessed it, Moab. And while the name pays homage to an iconic civil rights movement of generations past, the poets are very much a reflection of the interdisciplinary conversations that dominate the present. What I always love about the show is that there's a really diverse group of queer people from all walks of life who get up and, and kind of share their truth. And that truth is, is also geared towards, like, imagining a better future or a future that is more just welcoming of who we are as queer people. And I think what's really cool about the Poetry Slam is that when the poets are presenting those poems about that future, they are simultaneously kind of creating that space in the present. And I think that there are so many times, you know, where marginalized community members are organizing or fighting for rights or, you know, against discrimination. And we don't have the opportunities to kind of live in the futures that, that we dream of very often. Fergancic grew up in Delta. The Obergefell decision that cleared the way for same-sex marriage was still a few years away when they were in high school. Fergancic is happy to see progress in the region, but says there's unfinished business. I think, like, it's still a part of the state that is incredibly hostile especially to like trans folks or especially to BIPOC queer folks. I think sometimes we, we have a tendency to kind of look, look at the fact that we have a pride or these events as a sign that we're maybe a little bit more progressive than we think. But I do think that there is still a huge amount of resistance and violence to queer people just existing and thriving in this part of the state. Fergancic Slam draws a number of young poets, Autumn Meadows was a teenager when she first attended Slamming Bricks. She moved to Grand Junction from Bayfield in southwestern Colorado. LGBTQ youth are at greater risk for housing insecurity, which Meadows experienced when she first moved here. The nonprofit Cars helped her with housing. 
and embracing her identity. They really encouraged me to, you know, pursue my interests as a queer person and to really accept myself and learned to appreciate my queerness and, you know, who I am and what a big part of me that is. Through Slamming Bricks, I've been connected to people that are really involved in the queer community, especially those that have hearts for advocacy and just, you know, social justice, all that stuff. And I think that has really been a big part of my queer awakening, um, if you will. I think for me, I've always been really passionate about looking back at history and realizing, you know, what it took to be where I am today and how much of a privilege it is to be where I am today. Meadows has her own list of needs for the younger LGBTQ generation. She's Christian and hopes some of the churches that have resisted acceptance can still be brought along. She uses a wheelchair and is excited to see the community work to make their events more accessible. She also says some of the biggest needs for people like her are also the most basic. We really have to address the core issues. And I think some of the core issues when it comes to queer youth and teens are queer youth and teens often get, you know, kicked out of their houses and they become homeless. You know, and oftentimes it can be because, you know, they're gay or trans or something. And there's actually a member of my family that is newer when it comes to being open about being trans and their family is non-supportive. And so they thankfully are staying with one of their parents, but their other parent kicked them out. And if that other parent that they're staying with would have also kicked them out, they would have been homeless. Meadows spends a lot of time reading about different generations of the gay rights movement. It's true, she says, that the effort needs new voices and leaders, but she's not in any rush to retire her elders. I feel like the older community still plays a really important role with queer youth. I feel like a lot of queer youth today are very lost. They just feel very unseen, unheard, and unacknowledged, and unaffirmed, and just there's a lot of, you know, mental health issues within the community that unfortunately, you know, have gone up, and, you know, suicide rates, all that kind of stuff. I guess young adults, especially people such as myself, need to take the initiative to be good leaders for the younger teens and just kind of the teenagers that are trying to work through what it means to be queer to them and how to embrace themselves and learn to love and accept themselves. In Grand Junction, I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. Finally today, in Fruta, not far from here, a renovated storefront has served as a cultural hub for the last decade. Cavalcade is a nonprofit arts venue in what had been a pizza joint. Uh, no longer smells like pizza. But the wind blows, right? The pizza parlor moved down the block so we can still get the smell. <laughs> Greg Luck works at the bike shop across the street. He's a regular at Cavalcade, first as an audience member, now as a performer. Well, we have an open mic every Thursday. I think I sat there for months before I actually was brave enough to get up on stage and play a song. Once a month, we have just a sit in a circle, and then we go around the circle, and when it's your turn, you can either play a song for everyone or pick a song that everyone can play along with you. And that gets a lot of people who are a little too nervous to get up in front of everyone and perform and play into a microphone. Or come to one of the open mics and get up on stage with the microphone and the lights. And a lot of people who've been performing at bars for decades come in and are a little bit nervous because everyone's listening. That's <laughs> so it's a different atmosphere. But, you know, we're human enough to let the song shine through and the intention shine through and support people who are getting their feet wet and getting comfortable with it. So, yeah, it's a really good atmosphere.
The cavalcade is popular with locals and tourists alike, who also come for poetry, theater, stand-up, and drum circles. Then there's a monthly variety show, and that's kind of a highlight of the things that go on there. It's the one thing that does cost money. It's an admission fee of $10. Community shows up and supports it, which is great, because that's what really pays the rent for the building. And that's kind of select acts from the open mic or from people we know. It's a good show. It's not very slick exactly, but it's it's slicker than open mic. We have an MC and jokes and things get going nicely and people have a good time. I got up one morning and then I lay back down Cause I couldn't see to find my way Greg Luck writes and performs as the Uncomfortable Plateau. The name was a happy accident. Not far from Grand Junction in Fruta is a big plateau. It's just a big dome-shaped, slightly boring-looking mountain from a distance, but it's all crenellated with canyons covered in trees at the higher elevations, which are approaching 10,000 feet or so. It's a place where it doesn't have enough star power. There's not like an amazing mountain up there that you have to see or a big lake or some sort of draw or attraction. So it's mostly just locals who go up there to recreate. There's a fair amount of moto traffic up there, hunting in season. And I go up there frequently to hike or bike. I usually come back all scratched up or bruised because the trails are awkward and it's overgrown and, and strange. So it's a great place for me to have fun and kind of get away from it all. I was typing Uncompagre, the name of the plateau, into my phone one day and the phone corrected it to uncomfortable plateau, it got me thinking like, hey, that kind of is appropriate. That place is rather uncomfortable to be up there. And I got to looking at the little bit bigger picture where me in my post-middle age time of life, I'm probably not really reaching for the stars anymore. I've kind of probably plateaued. I'm just kind of slowly enjoying things until I fall off the backside. So again, a slightly uncomfortable plateau. And I took it one step further in my mind and thought, Sometimes this has echoes of how civilization or society might be going at times, too. So they put all that together and thought, that's probably a good name for a band. Grand Junction musician Greg Luck, a.k.a. The Uncomfortable Plateau. He runs the open mic Thursday nights at the Cavalcade in Fruta. We'll leave you with his song, Looking Back. It'll never be the same Even if I get through so much I can do And it's been so good for so long And there's so much I will miss And I'm looking forward To looking back, to looking back on all this In Grand Junction, I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.